Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Samson Folk, and you're listening to the last episode in the Loving Basketball mini podcast series I've been doing when I talk to many different people about why they love the game. And I just wanted people to be able to listen to why so many different people with so many different perspectives love the game of basketball and how in some cases it is unifying. In some cases it is empowering and, you know, it is the platform for very many human things. And uh, the person I talked to today was Caitlin Cooper, who, for my money, if you're looking for analysis on how basketball is played, the schematics of it, the strategy, and the details which we're going to talk about, I don't think you can find a single person covering basketball who does it better. Even the coaches who have coaches or players who have gone from the, you know, the court to the broadcast booth, I don't even know what they know that she doesn't as far as laying out the game for people to listen to and as far as being actually able to walk through it in a concise and extremely accurate manner. I just don't know anybody else who can put so much basketball information on a platter in sequence like Caitlin Cooper. She is brilliant. I learned so much from her. And yeah, I just, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to her about basketball and to find out why she loves it and what the most important facet of basketball is to her. So without further ado, Caitlin Cooper and uh, why she loves basketball. I really hope you enjoy it. Caitlin Cooper, what is your favorite thing about basketball? Yeah, my favorite thing about basketball is the details. I wasn't exactly sure how to distill that into one word. I was going to say minutia, but then I thought minutia has somewhat of a negative quality to it where we think of it as more trivial. And I don't see the details of basketball generally as trivial. I probably magnify them more than they need to be in certain circumstances, but I just love tracing things across games. I mean, in my opinion, might change on this topic as a player, you know, versus, you know, being a daughter of a coach or my dad, where I grew up here in Indiana with my dad coaching, like across all those things, what I love about basketball might change, but I think details has always been there. Okay. So my first question is details, and this is getting into the distilling part or maybe, you know, creating a dichotomy, but what types of details? Because Evan and I, after we recorded our episode, we talked about, you know, Jay Triano and how he kept the detail of one rule tucked away for years, only to spring it on an inbound pass and celebrate it. And how he used to have players do presentations on rules in the rule book to try and find where it can be exploited, looking for details. But there's also like little details in how you run a play, how you defend a guy. So what stands out most to you of that grouping or perhaps even something else? Right. So can, can I give a writing example? I think that will be the best Hell way yeah. to explain it. So, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time and my work really wasn't getting noticed until around the time that I wrote this piece. So I think it was the 2019 season, the Pacers first game, they played the Brooklyn Nets. 
and it was very high scoring and very fast paced. And like, I'm not a writer who has access. So the game was over. And like, I noticed those topics, but I'm like, that's what everybody's going to write about. I'm not going to be able to write that as well. So I rewatched the game as I normally do. And it was after halftime where the Pacers had the ball on a sideline out of bounds play and the camera for Fox sports, Indiana, now Bally sports showed Kenny Atkinson say WTF on the camera. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird because he didn't seem mad. He wasn't yelling at anybody. It was just like something he was just saying and passing. And I happened when I saw that, I was like, oh, I remember when Candace Buckner, who now works at the Washington Post, was the beat reporter for the Pacers, talked about Dave Yeager coming over to where the media area was and saying WTF over and over again and being like, no, 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 I'm not I'm not being profane. It's the name of a play. And I was like, you know, that would be a pretty cool story to chase if that's what the Pacers were in fact running. So I went back to that game where Dave Yeager would have been coaching against the Pacers, watched all the out of bounds plays and was like, is that the same thing that the Pacers are doing? And in that journey, I found out that that was something that the Lakers would run with Phil Jackson, which means that um, Brian Shaw would have been there. And Brian Shaw was later an assistant with Nate McMillan having been there with Frank Vogel so you could see this oral lineage and I end up tracing what the play was and showing that Kobe Bryant actually hit a game winner against the Memphis Grizzlies with that and the long story short when Kenny Atkinson called out the play the Pacers were arranged to run what is WTF but when they heard him say it they then adjusted and ran a different play out of the same formation where Doug McDermott ended up being like baseline drive baseline drift um, and just got a corner three out of it. So that was a story I wrote. And that was like something that Steve Jones on Twitter, he shared it. And he was like, you know, WTF is actually a pretty difficult play to recognize. And like, this is good. And that was like the first time that people noticed something that I was writing because I have to be in somewhat of a niche, but I also just love that kind of stuff. Like seeing how teams, you know, will do a chess match where it's like, okay, they know what we're going to run. How are we going to react to them knowing that? And how do our players adjust on the fly to, to do something like that? So that was the basic example that I would give as a writer that I think kind of best summarizes some of the stuff that I do. Okay, so A, fantastic callback. B, what, and also like, hell yeah, to track it back to, you know, especially because people really connect with those, like those touchstone parts of of a piece the fact that you're able to trace it back to a kobe game winner and then give that's that's tremendous first of all i i haven't read that piece um perhaps you can send it to me afterwards but this also brings to mind in the nba and actually relative to a lot of sports the nba is kind of juxtaposed against them as the one where the players have the most control and the best team wins a lot of the time and that leads people to believe that it's superstar driven and like, if you have the best player, you win. Details be damned, the best player wins the game. What are the details that you think are most often missed by fans and are correlated a lot with winning that are maybe not talked about as much? That's a great question because I think that that is the general consensus. And I think I even agree with that to an extent, but I think something that's out there prevalent a lot is that every team runs the same plays. And I disagree with that. Like, I think every team runs a lot of the same actions and there are, there is copycatting, like sometimes all catalog. I mean, you know, this as much as anybody mm-hmm. that last year I caught, I talked about the Indiana Raptors and how the Pacers were running most of the same stuff with Nate Bjork and his head coach that what Nick nurse was running just only with different players. And then they, they tweak some parts of it. So I think that's the case, but I also think 
it's not about like right now the Pacers aren't running the same stuff under Rick Carlisle that they ran under Nate Bjorken a year ago. So to say that everybody runs the exact same plays, I don't think is accurate, but also just like very basic things where, you know, maybe you're using an exit screen in a certain, you know, part of the action so that you're removing a tagger to go out to the corner. Um, you're most of the time, I think as fans, you're just watching and seeing, Oh, like just for an example, like, Oh, Tyrese Halliburton came off a double drag and threw a lob pass to Isaiah Jackson and he made it. And like, those are great feats by both of them. I mean, Tyrese Halliburton has great eye manipulation. He has really good pass fakes. Isaiah Jackson has incredible vertical pop, a great second leap. And those are all credit to them, but it also has to do with the geometry of where they're being set up where, you know, okay, they're purposely putting Chris Duarte in the strong side corner so that his player isn't roaming over into that passing lane. So, I mean, it also has to do with that the Pacers have Chris Duarte, who's a respectable shooter, but there is stuff that goes into the coaching, just, you know, you know, where they're positioning players, when they're moving, how they're moving, that goes into whether that lob actually comes off or not. Because, I mean, let's pretend you put and this isn't like Miles Turner can shoot the ball, but if Miles Turner's in the strong side corner instead of Chris or the weak side corner instead of Chris Duarte, you know, his guy might be over there in Isaiah Jackson's path, and then he's not converting that lob at the same degree. So um, I like to focus on a lot of that stuff and hope that, like, you know, people can learn a little bit more of the game and understand um, that there are coaching aspects along with various things that players do that do make a difference. Mm-hmm. Well, for Raptors fans, since this is a Raptors podcast who are listening, like you can remember back to the game against the Bulls that the Raptors won, the game clinching shot that Gary Trent Jr. hit. The Raptors ran Spain leak, but Nick Nurse was screaming with all his might. Well, he was calling it stack, but screaming with all his might to move OG into the corner instead of in the back screener and leaking position and instead put Gary Trent Jr. in that position. And that radically changes the outcome of that play probably is just how that works. And so Raptors fans, that's like an exact um, outcome you can look at. But the thing that I'm like really interested in is, is there a guy or a girl that you know in coaching that is like really nailing the details? You hear a lot of NBA media kind of obsess over Borrego as a guy who draws up, you know, terrific formations and stuff like that. But do you have a personal favorite? I mean, I think you can look pretty deeply at the Phoenix Suns and just see them as like, when I watch the Phoenix Suns, it's like you're being wrapped in a warm blanket. I mean, all the very different (laughs) Spain, I mean, just what you're saying, the Spain variations where, you know, if a team is going to switch the guards and drop the big, then you will leak out at a certain side. But like they have counters for every counter against that. Like if a team's going to hedge, then they'll set a pin down in the middle of the court with for the back screeners already came out to then get so the third defender can't be guarding two people at once. Like you can, you can watch it down to a science that they have so many counters out of that. But like, I mean, I think it applies to almost any team. I mean, there was one game where the Pacers were playing the bulls and they closed. I think, I don't remember. I think miles Turner was out already with the stress reaction at this point or, or another injury. I'm not sure, but they played the bulls and Sabonis was closing that particular game. And Sabonis isn't the same caliber rim protector that miles is. So, I mean, a lot of teams I've seen kind of moving towards this trend in general, but um, they put O'Shea Brissett on Vucevic and put Sabonis on whoever the four was at the time so that he wouldn't have to be actively involved in the pick and roll action. And then they were also actively pre-switching on the screen approach with Torrey Craig so that Sabonis was basically not involved in those actions. And you might have thought like, oh, that was just a response that Torrey Craig was making and audibly calling out. But when you watch the game back, it was actually – 
the one of the Pacers assistant coaches jumped off off the bench and was you could see motioning like switch that matchup get O'Shea over on Vucevic because then they could switch him on to DeMar DeRozan so I think just even just watching when I watch games back and seeing how coaches interact on the sidelines because that was a pretty big contrast in general like to see that Rick Carlisle was giving his coaching staff that degree of latitude was a change from what you would have seen under Nate Bjorkren when he basically didn't use his assistants that much last year it was kind of a one-man show so um, I think it can also just speak to how the organization operates and that they do have a little bit more diversification in how they use their stats but are their their staff but um, that was just one little detail that I remember pretty vividly that was an adjustment from how the Pacers typically defend okay and this next question is a big ask by the way so if if you don't have it in your bag that's okay but (laughs) I'm curious what you think has been has formerly been a detail and then became like a, a very large thing in the league. For example, like we we've talked about peel switching before and there's, or X outs and how like these are new things relative to the NBA. Well, in the past, however many, like 10 years or so. Right. And they start out as like little defensive wrinkles and then they become full out massive parts of schemes and stuff like that. What, what is an offensive or defensive detail that became a massive part of schemes. I mean, I think more and more these last two years, you see what I said earlier, you see coaches using exit screens a lot to re not as a means to get that guy a shot. A lot of the time, like, I think that we watch it and think that that guy's coming off and you're going to get a corner three. And sometimes you do, I think it's more so about moving help defenders, but also Mm -hmm. I think something that I've noticed a lot from various teams is having guys in the corner who it's not so much about stationary spacing anymore. It's continuous spacing and that they'll be screening the secondary help. I've even seen a couple teams here lately where they'll be screening the stunter. Like if they stun up to the ball, then the corner guy will, will go up there. And I think sometimes people call it a lock-in screen where then you're getting a corner three that way, but it's also preventing the help defense from being able to do something. Another trend that I really wanted to do, which I've done one piece at 538, and I was always like, you know, if I had time, that's one that I'd like to investigate that I've noticed more this season than in the past, is that I call it switch to blitz, where if a big gets switched out onto the perimeter, and we, we really think about that in the playoffs, like we talk about, oh, is that big going to get played off the floor? I feel like teams have been testing out a lot this season. If it's feasible for them to switch the big and then bring an extra defender against isolation. So it will predominantly happen with bigs that you think would be vulnerable. So like the Pacers, when they played the Lakers, would do this against like LeBron James. If LeBron James hunted Sabonis, they would switch that and then they would bring a late second help. I've seen the Phoenix Suns do it with Aiton. I've seen the Mavericks before Porzingis got traded, mm-hmm. that they would do the switch to blitz with Porzingis. And I've also seen even uh, not the way that you would think of it with a guard, but I've seen a couple teams with the Sixers, if Embiid is out on the perimeter and they get a small that they will then come and blitz it. So I'm curious to know when the playoffs come around, if this like calculus between containment and pressure is something that grows like are they going to be willing to for the sake of not allowing the star to beat you and forcing someone else to do it are more teams going to be willing to double in that space because like obviously teams double team a lot in the playoffs but it's generally when a screen is involved or in the post if you're willing to go double in an isolation situation at the top of the key that makes you very vulnerable and you have to be on point 
with those rotations out of the double team. So I've, I've halfway wondered, like, if it was something where I had more access, I'd like to ask some of these coaches, like, what are you seeing out on the floor when you're willing to do that? And how do you feel about how your team's rotating out of it? And do you think that's something that could be viable down the road? I did have somebody who works in analytics tell me, like, maybe that's an uptick this season in part because of, you know, roster depletions with COVID and the G League situation that teams are more willing to allow like G League players to try to beat them than they would be if the rotation was at full strength. But in some of the games that I've seen it, like I watched it on Christmas Day, I watched the Suns do that against Steph Curry, which it's Steph Curry, but I mean, both teams were relatively healthy for that game and they were still doing it. So that's kind of my one like soapbox nugget that I've noticed this year that I'd like to do something with, but just haven't had the time to really explore more in depth. Mm. Well, I'll, your colleague at the 538, dear friend of mine, Lewis Satsman, wrote about the uptick in filling both corners in the pick. Yeah, I read that and like, piece. And that's like a that's a small detail too. That I think I can't remember if it's Chris Finch that Evan quoted is like always saying occupy the weak side, and like that's the same thing with exit screens too. Is like the manipulation goes far beyond what the guy on ball is doing. This the way you structure your sets does so much for how for the outcome of the possession and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's super fun. But my next question is why, why details? Why, why is this something you gravitated towards? Why do you think that this is one of your favorite things about basketball? All of that. I mean, I think it probably goes back to growing up and being the daughter of a coach. Like I said, I mean, watching my dad coach high school games, I asked him this question when I knew I was going to do this podcast. We don't talk about basketball a ton. Like it's more conceptual when we have conversations about it. But I I said, you know, what was your favorite thing about basketball? And he was always a lot more process oriented. Like he enjoyed being at practice and helping kids grow and get better more than the actual games. I was like, you know, my favorite part of you coaching was probably when we would hop in the car and go on scouting trips and we'd just be in the gym. And I would more so than the game, I would observe him and what he was writing down and what he was noticing about opponents. And I was always marveling that he could, you know, be charting sets that opponents were running and know what they were called and be watching what the coach was doing and calling them out. In addition to writing down details of like, okay, we want to force this player left and, you know, that type of stuff. So Watching the game through that lens, I think, has made me a little bit more attuned to that now. But also, I mean, before we hopped on, I talked about it. Because I don't have access, I have to differentiate myself in some way as a writer if I want to, you know, have readership and have um, people see my work as something different than they'll be able to get from, you know, whoever else is covering the Pacers. So I think that's a part of it. Just like as a funny anecdote, <laughs> there was about a year ago where somebody sent me an email and said, you know, I want to get better at recognizing stuff on the court. How do you do this? Or what advice would you give? And it was one of the most difficult things I've ever written <laughs> was a reply to that email, because I was like, you know, I don't really know the answer to how I do some of the stuff that I do. And I put out on Twitter, I was like, this is the hardest email response I've ever written. And Jared Weiss over at The Athletic replied with the following and said, every story idea is you see something that reminds you of something else. And then you either write it down or you forget about it. And then you will remember it two years later and you'll write about it. And like, that was a joke, but it kind of hit the nail on the head. I think that's probably how most of my pieces are sourced. It's just me rewatching a game, clipping a bunch of stuff and being like, you know, that might be interesting later on down the road and, and seeing if it's something that parlays into something later on. But 
um, to answer your question in very simple terms, I think it has a lot to do with my upbringing and also just, you know, trying to make it as a blogger or whatever we want to call what the jobs that we do are. Yeah, it's um, so that makes me think about like evaluating basketball. And I know like you obviously can evaluate basketball, but a lot of times you're writing about what's been happening rather than projection. But are there details of players' games that you like in particular or you consider like really great indicators of future success? Yeah, I I generally do look at what's been and wanting to explain that to the audience in real time. But um, one that I would like another example of something that I've written um, during the hiatus when we were all, you know, struggling for content, what we were going to write about while there was no basketball for however many months. Nate McMillan had kind of allowed Sabonis at the time to start grabbing the ball off the rim and push it in transition. And I had had a conversation with somebody, not about Sabonis in general, but just about that concept. And the person was like, I don't like it. I don't think it's worth um, the rewards of what you get if the big turns the ball over or or if you're actually getting into offense quicker. And I was like, really? Because I think that there's quite a bit of value in it. And Two days later, I, I texted the person. I was like, I'm going to watch all of those possessions and see and track the pace and what outcomes there were and how many turnovers there were, which at the case for Sabonis, it wasn't that many possessions because he hadn't fully had the keys turned over in that regard like he did last season under Bjorkren. So I sat there and watched all of his rebounds to see if he pushed off of them, clipped all of them, and then tracked the timing off of it to see. And it turned out that both of us were kind of right because at the time, Sabonis didn't have the same dexterity. And that's kind of been an indicator over these last two seasons and how he's grown with that. Because if you watched him two seasons ago, it was almost exclusive that he was going to bring the ball up and go to the left side of the floor and they would immediately go into a handoff. And, you know, if that's Doug McDermott, it was still good offense because you're getting a very quick three and open three a lot of times when defense is on their heels. And it generally did lead to overall ball, better ball movement when he came up because a lot of times, you know, the first big in transition protects the paint. The second big loads to the ball. There's not going to be somebody of size to stop Sabonis in that type of a situation, even though he isn't super quick. And then as the next season came after I wrote about some of those dexterity issues, then they're Nate Bjorker and he started using both sides of the floor. And then it grew a little bit more where now, you know, if a, if an opponent's top locking Doug McDermott in that type of a semi-transition situation, now it's Doug McDermott setting an inverted screen at the elbow for them to run pick and roll and Sabonis goes to the basket. Now here over the last month before he had gotten traded, um, the Pacers had kind of expanded that elbow pick and roll a little bit more, even to the point where it was kind of more of a brush screen and he would be using his right hand to get over to that side of the floor and, you know, hand off and then he would become the screener. So it had all grown quite a bit just from those like handful of 35, 40 possessions that Nate McMillan had kind of allowed him to toy with without taking his um, point Sabonis privileges away. So um, that's like one little tiny detail where I was like, if I just look at all those and evaluate it and see where that could grow and what they could do with it, that was fun to watch over the last three seasons. Fantastic. The um, is there a detail that has fallen out of favor in the NBA? I'm using detail because that's the overall theme of the pod. The pod, but is there something that's fallen out of favor in the NBA because it's no longer tenable? Like, what would you consider to fit into that grouping? I mean, I think a lot of people would probably just point out the post in general, but it's almost like to an extent the post has been reimagined for what it can be Mm -hmm. like that doesn't apply to somebody like Joel Embiid like when you have somebody that dominant or a Jokic 
there's plenty of reason to post them. I kind of probably see the post in a more favorable light. Um, this was even brought up over the summer. And I, I guess I, I should admit my wrongness because I did turn out to be somewhat wrong that um, Rick Carlisle was asked because of what his comments have been about Przingis in the post a couple of seasons ago prior to a TNT game where he was like, that's just not a viable play in our in, in, in the NBA today with the amount of time that it takes to get the ball in there. It's just, it's, it's not an efficient play type or whatever he had said. And um, because of what type of player Sabonis is, reporters had asked Rick Carlisle about that. And he said, I still think that, but if you have a player like a Luka Doncic, I forget who else he named. I think Anthony Davis, maybe Embiid. He's like, you know, that's something that you're still going to make use of. We'll make use of it with Sabonis. And then when the season started, they really weren't like he was averaging fewer post-ups than Porzingis was in Dallas. And I understand what Rick Carlisle is getting at in general. And maybe Sabonis isn't even necessarily the best player to use this as, but I mean, you watch the golden state warriors and the post still has a place even in, and still had a place during their championships runs. We know they're running triangle concepts out of the post where their split cuts and the post then becomes a vehicle for assists. And I still think there's a place for that even in the playoffs because it does reshape the defense. If you have somebody like a Sabonis or Embiid where double teams are going to come and they can be a viable passer, that gives you another entry point, another place to attack where in some circumstances, you know, especially for a Sabonis, if he's outside the three point line you know teams aren't going to guard him out there I don't know what degree of of improvement he would have to show as a shooter for him to be drawing more attention and that kind of goes I think it was Owen Phillips who also used to write at 538 before he now writes for the Knicks talked about kind of the myth of the stretch shooting five and how at a contest rate unless it was Carl Anthony Towns or Jokic like a lot of times those guys don't see a contest especially in the pick and pop but if you're in the post and you're drawing that type of attention, I think it's more just, you know, is, is that possession being used solely for a one-on-one -on -one attempt? And then, you know, at the other end of the floor, you might be exchanging threes for twos, then maybe it's not valuable. But if you're drawing, you know, if you have sets drawn up, like I think Chris Finch has done some pretty creative ones with Carl Anthony Towns this year, where they'll, where they'll pair 45 cuts with split cuts that can kind of disorient what defenses are doing, then I think it still has a place, but, um, I kind of like it when when coaches and, and teams can find ways to still use stuff like that and keep it relevant because it does it does add more variety to the game. But um, I think that's probably the best example I can give off the top of my head. I man, I love the post up, especially and I could be wrong about this. This is mostly just how I view the post up, but the switch back to using it as a playmaking hub and how teams and defenders have been so comfortable switching to everything's initiated above the break or near it. I feel like it inverts defensive responsibilities and especially for younger guards, they have a lot of trouble defending off ball when it's initiated through the post. And maybe I'm only saying this because I've been watching the Raptors just OGN and Obi posts up more than anybody else, but Pascal gets a decent amount. Scotty gets a decent amount. And it's been really interesting to see how younger guards who maybe you know, they didn't play against post-up bigs basically any point in their life to see how they defend in those situations and to see how, as you said, it's been reimagined. It, it, it really fascinates me how it inverts the floor for, from a playmaking point of view and how that has to be defended. I think it's yeah. really cool. Yeah, one example I should have given of this that was even better and more relevant now that Sabonis is on a different team 
they played the Cavs in Tyrese Halliburton's first game with the Pacers. And in the fourth quarter, J.B. Bickerstaff made the adjustment that they started switching Evan Mobley and Jared Allen out. And that bothered, like, as good as Tyrese is at creating self-created threes and what uh, at stop and popping against drops and everything else he can do, when he had to go against Evan Mobley's length, he had to give up the ball a couple times and they couldn't get into anything. It was stifling and revealing and probably kind of a little bit scary for some Eastern Conference teams if they're able to pull that off and keep both bigs on the floor doing it. But one way that the Pacers pivoted because they were struggling to attack the outside matchup is they actually posted, which I have not seen all season. They posted Chris Duarte on the right block and then made the bigs have to defend a split cut up above him. So they, they put Mobley into that action. And then I, I'm trying to think who the off ball shooter ended up being. The guy missed the shot, but I was like, that's a good example of how the post can still be relevant because what you're saying, like with OG, you're putting the guard down there. You're having clear sight lines for shooters and you're also forcing people to defend in a way that they're not really used to having to do. Yeah. It's man, it's really cool. And I've been so happy to have you come on and explain how little things create big rifts in how, you know, it changes the, the context of a team or for a player or whatever. Are there any parting shots you have for details? No, I mean, I, I, I always hesitate to tell people like how to be a fan or what to like, like you don't have to like the things that I like about basketball. I think that's why this series has been so good is because there's been a lot of different perspectives, but I do think that, you know, even another piece that I wrote this year was just writing about one specific play that the Pacers wrote and I clipped every single time they did it, watched how every opponent defended it and wanted to know like, okay, how impervious is this to different types of coverages? Are there other ways that you can run it? Um, I think that type of stuff's really interesting. And I think that there's a place for it in NBA content, or at least I hope that there is um, among some of the way that the NBA is being covered today, that there'll be an audience for it. And I just appreciate there being a forum like this. Hopefully these podcasts can be kind of timeless for you where people can go back and listen to what everybody's perspective is and why they love basketball. That's that's really what I want it to be is just people to see that, you know, there's a lot of different ways to and this is the last episode. I mean, maybe I maybe I end up doing some more. Who knows? But for at least this period in time, like the Loving Basketball series, uh, Caitlin Cooper, you are the you are the bookend. And I, I do. I agree with you totally. There's no one way to look at basketball, but I hope the way that particularly you and I cover the game becomes i don't know more viable to do as a career and it becomes something that people appreciate more and uh i hope that people don't have to put it out for free on twitter and that's the only way to get like recognized for it i think but i i really appreciate you listening outside of this and i so appreciate you coming on i, I was really looking forward to this conversation and you didn't disappoint in the slightest i'm honored that i'm the last guest that's kind of special for me so thanks for having me on it this was premeditated i'll have you know so i yeah i'm glad it is special thanks for coming on caitlin listener thanks for tuning in i hope you enjoyed the loving basketball series i may package them all together into like a four-hour podcast and release them in the summer with timestamps. but i don't really know i guess we'll see what the lull in in coverage looks like and if people want to be reminded of the conversations that were had here we'll see but Thanks for tuning in, whether you got into it in the morning or at night. Have a blessed day and goodbye.